1: To the Freedom Pact. Welcome back to the Freedom Pact podcast and today on the show I am speaking to Neil Oliver, author of Wisdom of the Ancients, Life Lessons from Our Distant Past. Before I tell you more about this episode, it is Monday and that means for you guys who are signed up to the Healthy, Wealthy and Wise newsletter, you would have received it first thing this morning. And for you guys who haven't, head over to freedompackcouk forward slash newsletter to sign up ready for next Monday. Now, on to today's show. This is quite honestly one of my favorite episodes I have ever recorded personally. It is also arguably about my favorite book of 2020 so far, Wisdom of the Ancient, Life Lessons from Our Distant Past. And I'm going to set this interview up by reading a quote from the book, and I think it sums up exactly what this book is about and why it is so important, and why this podcast is so important, and why this episode can be so beneficial to us all. The feelings and passions of our ancestors are hard to see among stones and bones, and yet it is those emotions that we have in common. It makes sense to me that it is at least possible that we might be helped in our time and world by seeing how they coped in theirs. So much has changed between their time and ours, but human emotions are surely the same. What was felt in their world is felt in ours. Now, without any further ado, Neil Oliver, welcome the Freedom Pact podcast.
0: Thanks very much for having me. Looking forward to our chat.
1: So we're here today to discuss this book, Wisdom of the Ancients. I must say, um, I haven't quite enjoyed a book like it for some time, and um, I'll get to why later on in the podcast. But I was quite gripped from the first line. You said, I wrote this book in search of answers. What questions were you looking to answer when you wrote this book?
0: Well, it's, a, it's really, it's quite a long answer because it was part of a process that had been going on really for me for years. Mm. Uh, I've become increasingly aware over a long period that the world, the West, I suppose, really, the Western world seemed to be getting angrier and angrier. Uh, the, the temperatures seemed to be rising, not just in terms of like climate change, but in people's mood and behaviour to, towards one another. Um, there was a, I was aware that, well, on the one hand, uh, science and technology for generations have delivered so much. You know, we can feed and clothe more people than ever before. We've got 7 billion people alive on the planet at one time, which is in itself extraordinary. Uh, medical advances, technology that allows you and me to take part in this conversation in a way that would have been unimaginable even a decade ago, you know, far less when I was a child growing up. It's just, it's a miracle, all these things. And yet so many people around me in the wider community, you know, rattling with antidepressants and, and stressed to the eyeballs and, and worried about this, that, and the next thing. And I thought these two states of, of play don't seem to match up. There's a disconnect. We've got so much Our lives have been made so full of potential, and yet people are incredibly angry and upset. And I thought, I told you it was a long answer, I thought perhaps the the distress that was being caused for people was at least somewhere in all the white noise, the deluge of data that were under all the time, news 24 hours a day, uh, social media, Uh, information coming in from all these different platforms, and we're all desperately trying to process them. And ultimately, we are cognitively and physiologically the same animals that we were 200,000 years ago. But we've surrounded ourselves with all this complicated cleverness. And I thought maybe if we could strip that veneer away and look back at the way in which people, for periods of time measuring, not just centuries, but millennia, Asked big questions about what it means to be human and alive. What the lights mean in the sky What 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 happens before we're born what happens after we've died? How did they answer those questions? And I thought if those answers that they had in their world in their time if those answers worked for them Perhaps they could offer peace of mind and even happiness for us in ours
1: Mm. and just as you said there a lot has changed and continues to change uh, about humans but I wonder at our core what hasn't changed?
0: Well we are uh, our brains process about four bits of information a second as computers that are unbelievably slow you know compared to the things that we take for granted in our smartphones and computers far less the, far less than supercomputers that you know that, that look after the delivery of you know the, the social media and, and the rest of the the internet technology, uh, we're still running Hunter software. You know, we're running the, the original software that was that was effectively programmed into us when our species emerged somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa 200, 250,000 years ago. Uh, so we have not changed. We're even physiologically, to some extent, still coming to terms with the change to farming. For 190,000 years, if you like, we were hunters. And that had an effect on our diet. Then with the advent of farming, everything radically changed and people were increasingly dependent upon a diet based around cereals. Look at how many people around us say they are or are gluten intolerant. Celiac disease and people that just won't eat wheat, won't eat bread, won't eat pasta. And that's because for many people, even after... But even though our species has been exposed to eating domesticated grass for 10,000 years, for many people, it's still a step too far. Mm. So that, that shows you how long it takes for, our, for the animal that is the human being to adapt. Mm. And that, that's us adapting to farming. You know, we've been farming for 10,000 years. Farming also had, had a major impact on us socially, because we became, overnight, if you like, people who were fixed in one place, rather than moving over a white territory. We had to get up every day with the sun, undertake back-breaking work in the fields, work all day until it was dark, come home, eat some cereal, go to bed and get up and do it all again. We talk about the daily grind. The daily grind is literally an artifact of the first farmers who had to spend hours every day grinding wheat and barley into flour to make food. The daily grind. Now, we still complain about repetitive tasks that we have to undertake every day, knowing that there's no end in sight. We'll do it again tomorrow. After we're gone, our children will take it on. So psychologically, we're still dealing with becoming farmers. Add on to that what we've suddenly, in biological terms, done to ourselves in terms of technology. And it's probably no surprise that it's difficult for our brains, the same brains we've always had, to cope with all of that potential. And, and I, I think for a lot of people, it's creating stress and, and anxieties. Obviously, science, Luddite, science and technology, wonderful, it's given us the, the amazing modern world that we have, but it's still valid to be aware of the consequences that it has had and is having. Look at lockdown. You know, look at the stresses and strains that people are under on account of the restrictions that have put on have been put on people's lives and and in these lockdown times i would definitely say that social media is becoming even more problematic for people Uh, that you know that fake news you know people not knowing what platform to look at for the most accurate information about what the virus is doing to us people looking across the atlantic at the the upcoming uh, elections in november for you know between donald trump and joe biden people are are bombarded with all of this information. You can see the effect that it's having. Society is struggling at the moment. Look at the rioting that there has been, both in America and here, uh, the, the Black Lives Matter protests, the tearing down of statues, all of the viciousness that's out there between individuals on, on social media. You, this is a society that is under stress, and people are finding it difficult to cope. And with all of that in mind, I've done it all my life that I've, when I have felt you know, under pressure, I take great solace from the past. It's in my wiring. You know, I studied archaeology at university back in the 80s and I've loved archaeology and history ever since and I get reassurance from reminding myself about the way in which people coped with adversity in the past and, and I hoped that uh, you know, in the pages of this book that other people with even just a passing interest in history or archaeology might see that there are that there are lessons and and comforts there if you just pay attention to how people used to live and and used to face up to the realities of life and death.
1: And before we dive into some of that content in the book, one thing I'd love to get you to weigh in on. um, On this show, we've interviewed a number of uh, authors that talk about human nature. Um, So a few weeks ago, we interviewed um, an author called Rutger, Rutger Bregman, who wrote the book Humankind. Um, and his argument is that fundamentally, humans are good-natured. Um, but about a year ago, we interviewed Robert Green, who wrote Laws of Human Nature. And his argument is that humans um, have more of a dark side fundamentally, and we're a bit more selfish. So it's this debate whether humans are fundamentally good or evil. So through your research, would you say that it's in our human nature to be fundamentally good or evil? While
0: you were while you were talking there, my brain had already queued up um, <laughs> uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn and the Gulag Archipelago. Mm. And you, I'm sure you know that book has resurfaced again, in the in, in the general reading population, it's come back into some popularity. And one of the takeaway uh, understandings to be had from Solzhenitsyn is his statement about. Um, uh, the line separating good and evil doesn't pass between countries. It doesn't pass between political parties. It runs through the centre of every human heart. That we are all of us, every single individual, we are we are capable of goodness and badness equally. And for each of us, it's it, as, as Solzhenitsyn and others have said it's vitally important to be aware that we've, we've got the monster in us. You know, when it comes to, when people look back at the Holocaust of the, of the murder of the six million Jews, or indeed what Solzhenitsyn was writing about, which was the treatment of, of millions of people in the, in the Soviet gulags, people invite themselves to think, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have, I would have hidden Anne Frank and her family in my, in my attic and I would have made sure they were safe. I would have got Jewish children out I wouldn't have been a concentration camp guard. But the reality is that those places were, were manned and that behavior was undertaken by just ordinary people who had, who had simply uh, given into the darkness within. Mm-hmm. So in answer to your question, well, you've, you've had those two writers, one would espouse the general goodness and one would, would warn of the, of the darkness. I would say both potentials are there in each and every one of us all the time. Yeah. And, and and it's important, vital, to be aware that you have that potential within you. You know, the murderer, the torturer, uh, the executioner, the concentration camp guard, it's us. We are those people if we allow ourselves to be. And history has shown that, that circumstances quite readily nudge millions, hundreds of thousands of people into behaving in ways that, you know, maybe you and I and every other reasonable minded person would think unthinkable. I I think we've just got the potential to be both.
1: And there are a lot of stories uh, in this book that sort of um, give me hope about the good side. I think my favorite story uh, in the book is the one of the the first family we know of um, and the footprints going back 3.5 million years ago. And you said it was seemingly in their nature to care about each other. And I won't go into the story too much because people can can read it for themselves. But what can that very first family we know of teach us about family and the importance of love?
0: I've always been uh, amazed, fascinated, and reassured by the idea that there have been various different forms of humankind. That, you know, we've ended up being the last human apes on planet Earth and we've been here about 200, 250,000 years, but there have been Neanderthals before us, and Homo heidelbergensis, Homo erectus, and a whole line of shadowy characters going back into the past. It it appears that I think we're aware of as many as a dozen different kinds of of human being that has has either, sometimes they've they've cohabited, and and now we've ended up alone. Uh, And there are recognisable behaviours that we can see in all of them. You know, the Neanderthals cared for the dead. Uh, They worked collaboratively as teams. And then you go back to, you're talking about their, what's called the first family. And it's a set of footprints fossilized in volcanic ash from 3.5 million years ago in in Tanzania, the like footprints. Now they were made by Australopithecus africanus, the Southern ape, they're so far back in the family tree, that they don't even get the epithet Homo. They're not classed as as human. But but nonetheless, they're in our ancestral line. We we have inherited some of what we are uh, from the Australopithecines. Much smaller than us, much smaller brains. You know, we would look at them and see them as being closer to apes than us, probably. But nonetheless, they were on their way. They were, they were using tools, they were, they were functioning. And the, and the fact is, like tooly footprints, as they were interpreted by a paleoanthropologist called Mary Leakey, seem to suggest two adults and a child walking together. And it, it's hard not to imagine them walking hand in hand, the way your mind's eye pictures them. And it, there's, a, there's a, a suggestion that one, one of the adults broke away from the pair for a while, checked something that was bothering her, and Mary Leakey imagined it was the mother, and then rejoined the group. And she said this was a moment of doubt that a mother, together with her partner and her child, she was bothered about something, had to go and have a look, and having reassured herself she came back. So, and she, so that was 3.5 million years ago, a, a shadowy ancestor demonstrates the importance of looking out for the other people in the group. You know, she, she took herself away. to to reassure herself that the threat was not real and then came back. And I I think there's something amazingly reassuring about knowing that, along with other characteristics, we have somehow inherited that fundamental building block, which is the importance of family. In the lockdown, so much was stripped away for people. People had to stay off work and restricted their homes for 23 hours a day and all the rest of it. How quickly did it become for most people about family and being anxious about family we couldn't see, you know, mums and dads or grandparents or whatever, We're suddenly isolated from them. So people stopped worrying so much about, you know, the football leagues or, or, or the Kardashians or a whole host of other ephemera and it was suddenly all about, is everyone all right? Have we got enough food? Do we have enough tin tomatoes and toilet roll to get us through the week? So so these these moments, the lockdown has been very instructive as well as destructive. But it's been a reminder that very quickly, what is it that people are preoccupied with? Their kids, their mum. And that's the way it's been for 3.5 million years at least.
1: I love this idea of love being ancient because you hear... Um, a lot of people talking about how love is just this um, concept we've made up. But another story I loved is this 50,000-year-old funeral um, before speech was even a thing. And you, the quote you used was beautiful. Love was there before the word. How does this make you reflect on, on, hu- on human nature and love? And does it tell us that it is, you know, it is within us to, to love and be loved?
0: Oh, I, I, I try to be an optimist. I think as well as the sort of soldiering and good and evil, I, th- I think in reality most of us have optimists and pessimists living inside us as well. You know, the pessimists they are trying to, you know, pull us down. Optimists they are trying to uh, lift us up. And I, I try to be uh, optimistic. And I think that the, the evidence, the, the archaeological evidence is there that can be interpreted as demonstrations of love. You know, there's, you're talking about a, a, a couple of burials of Neanderthals in a cave in Iraq. Uh, there's also the, there's the Mesolithic, the Middle Stone Age mother and baby, buried together at a place called Vedbeck, which is modern-day Copenhagen in Denmark. A, a, a beautifully elegant and careful burial of, of, a, of a mother and an infant. And it, there's just no doubt that what you're excavating there, along with the stones and the bones, is love. And likewise, in the case of those Neanderthals, one of those Neanderthals seems to have been laid in a grave and then covered over with cut flowers. Now, how else can you interpret a gesture like that but as being grief and love? And I, I get a huge amount from, you You, you might, whether you, whatever you think about love, it, it's easy to, to dismiss it or to think of it as being an ephemeral human emotion that, that kind of comes and goes like, like a flash of sunlight. But the fact is, if we can excavate it out of the ground after 10,000 years or after 50,000 years, that suggests that ephemeral, although it may appear, love lasts because we see it in the way that the ancestors treated one another. And, and it's important to me to remember all the time that the, world, the, the, the worlds that those ancestors inhabited were unimaginably different ours. They had nothing of the kit that we take for granted, nothing of the scientific understanding that we build our lives upon. They had every meal they ate had to be gathered or hunted down and killed. Every fire had to be kindled. They had to think about shelter, death and injury were ever-present threats. And yet, in the face of those hard, demanding, short lives, again and again, they express the fact that they're thinking big thoughts. You know, it's there in the cave art, underground in places like France and Spain, and, and here in Britain, that people in the midst of those incredibly demanding circumstances, some of them still took it upon themselves to go and make some of the greatest art that the world has ever seen. They weren't worn down to animal and brutish by the harsh circumstances. On the contrary, at least for moments here and there, they were elevated to acts of love, acts of artistic achievement, looking up at the stars and the planets and trying to comprehend their place as fragile human beings in the scheme of the cosmos. You see it archaeologically, that people were taking the time to ask those questions and come up with elegant answers. And so it says to me that the very least we can do with all that we have is something similar. You know, be elegant and graceful and thoughtful in the face of life and death.
1: There's such a, a romance in these acts of care and love we see from, from so far back. Um, another Neanderthal story in the book. Um, you talk about uh, the Neanderthal that was uh, incomplete from birth, had one good arm, um, uh, was blind in one eye, was probably, at the time, nothing but maybe a, a drain on resources, I had very little to offer back, but was kept alive by the others. And, and surely that tells me that we can find value in everyone beyond surface surface value. Is that right?
0: Yes, absolutely. Uh, these are the, the ones, I, mean, there's, I think there's 36 stories in, in the book, and you are highlighting instinctively, and without any prompting from me, the ones in, in many respects are, are, are those that are closest to my heart. Mm. Yes, it's one of, the, one of the, uh, those 50,000-year-old burials of a, a man who probably lived into his 40s, which by the standards of, of the time and of that species is probably old. That's an old man. And he'd been disabled in some way from birth, a, a, a faulty arm, and it looks as if at some point in his life the lower part of his arm was amputated, deliberately taken away because it was probably useless, and he's in one eye. And as you rightly say, we would look back at that and think, well, here's somebody who can't hunt and is just consuming resources. And what do they have to give? Well, they obviously had something to give because these people valued him. And he was fed, he was, he was provided with food and all the other things that he needed for the whole of his life. And then when he died, they had a funeral for him in the cave, close by where they had their hearths and fires. You know, he, he was put down and covered over as though they didn't want him to be far away from them. Even after death, they wanted him to be nearby. So perhaps during the course of his long life, he had acquired great wisdom. Maybe he was, maybe he was very clever. Maybe he was extremely able at, at, at reading the, the weather, at, at understanding, you know, events in the wider uh, environment that were of significance maybe by living for 40 years, he'd seen 40 winters, 40 summers, 40 springs, so younger people could come to him and and and, uh, and draw upon the reservoir of, of wisdom that he had on account of having lived so long. He, he may well simply have been a very intelligent, insightful individual and would appear to be someone that they loved and valued. I mean, he's, the molars, his teeth were ground down to stumps, you know, he, you know, he'd lived long enough, and, and on, that, on that diet that, that they had, that his teeth were almost gone, and yet still they kept him with them. And, and so, yes, we make superficial judgments about who are the important people. Uh, and, and very often, archaeologically speaking, you know, we, we pay great attention to, say, a pharaoh from, from inside a pyramid or, or somebody else whose who's burial circumstances with a sword or a shield or whatever seems to signify that they were a great warlord. But of course, it's much harder to know why people were truly valued. You know, maybe the warrior gets treated that way because people fear him and fear his family, fear the consequences of not, you know, burying all sorts of wealth with him when he goes. And maybe he's got bullying warriors around him to make sure it happens. You know, so a grand funeral, yes, but what exactly motivated it? But for someone like, Nandi, the archaeologists called that that neanderthal body Nandi. you know he was uh, disabled partially blind with only one good arm in such a difficult environment and they loved him and for me the ultimate fascination about him is that though we can speculate we will never know exactly why they wanted him with them for as long as they could manage
1: I think the sign of a, a really good book is something that when, when you change your mind on something, and one of the biggest things I've changed my mind on since reading this book is what a home means. Now, I'm looking through the screen now uh, into your home, and I can see it's very personal to you. You've got a beautiful plant next to you. There's all sorts of you know iconography dotted around that obviously means something personal to you. Um, and I think, especially at the moment in the modern world, we're all rushing around. Um, we've always got somewhere to be. I've always maybe neglected the importance of home and I haven't seen it as a, a sort of center to my world. But I wonder for you, from researching, and you did an entire chapter on home, what has looking at these old homes going back as far as I think one you mentioned was 1.9 million uh, uh, years? How has that made you reflect on your home and what it means to you? Well,
0: uh, it, we talked earlier about the, the switch to to farming and how that fixed people in the landscape. It, it necessitated a permanent base. You know, if you've got cleared fields with a crop in them or a, or a herd of cattle or a flock of sheep, you've got to stay nearby so that you can uh, so that you can provide the care for the animals, or you can weed the crop or harvest the crop or keep the birds off or whatever. And so you have to have a home. Uh, but it, even, though, even before that, going back uh, hundreds of thousands of years, we see evidence of people needing shelter, needing a base. Now you're, you're alluding there to the, I get back in old divides, back in, back in uh, Tanzania and Africa. Uh, and it's a, the, that, that 1.9 million year old house it's a house, it's a, a circle of volcanic rock mm. and, it lo- and it was interpreted as likely being the foundation for a, like a teepee. So there would be a, kind of a timber structure of branches like a, like a, a teepee and then clad in vegetation or, or whatever else was available. Um, I, I, and again, I mean, this is, this is going back to a period when, when our ancestors were, were Homo erectus, a, a very early iteration of, of humankind. Uh, And and the the suggestion is that it's a fundamental shift in thinking for for an animal to to have a place to come back to. It it suggests a place where these people were leaving behind in safety, in a remembered place. Maybe uh, mothers of, of infants who were too small to go on the hunt. And while they waited back there for hours or maybe even days, others from the group would have gone out out of sight and hunted or gathered food. And unique to our species really is rather than eating where the food is found, like, you know, you picture a pride of lions on the Serengeti and they bring down a zebra and they all just gather around it and eat it. Uh, Uniquely, human beings began to delay that gratification so they would, they would find something or kill something. And instead of, you know, satisfying their hunger there, they would remember that place and the people waiting for them there. And they would take the food back and, they, you know, and they would share it. And in that lie, the, the sketchy, shadowy outlines of family life and the shared meal and the home in which to share that meal. And it's once, the, once that idea was conjured into being, In this instance, by Homo erectus, but then later came, you know, Homo heidelbergensis, and then came the Neanderthals, and then came us. And one way or another, we've all found the necessity to have somewhere in the landscape that's safe, where where maybe uh, females can be left, or infants can be left, and and at the end of a, a hunt, or at the end of a day's activity, it was somewhere to go back to. And that is foundational to our to our behaviour to this day. I keep mentioning the lockdown, but I think it's opposite because during the lockdown, that's all we had. I mean, you, you looked into my, you know, this is my study. I'm looking into the room where you're working and I can see it's lots of books, photographs, cards, you know, mementos, all sorts of things. Homes are places where we, we gather around ourselves, you know, like a, like, a, like a shell that some sea creature builds up on its back. You know, we gradually are treated with the things that seem to us the things that matter and they're part of they're part of home as well and during the lockdown when so much else was taken away from us and when people felt threatened you know what were they what did they come to depend upon and, and, and spend so much time in but home you know and it, it's important to remember how, how important it is just to have a home look at the people that we see day in and day out uh, uh, you know people you know trying to uh, uh, trying to get across the English Channel and whatever your, whatever your feelings are about illegal immigration and the people that are coming and what their motivations might be, those people don't want to be on the move. Uh, whatever else might be motivating their behaviour, they're trying to get to somewhere that they can stop. <laughs> they don't want to wander forever. However many thousands of miles they might have come and whatever they're trying to get to, eventually they want to get a house, a home, and gather some things around them. You know, that is is one of the fundamental driving motivations of people. Mm -hmm. And and to know that like love uh, and and the importance of family, that fundamental need for a sheltered place where people who are cared for can be safe is something that we share with, you know, maybe a dozen other of Mother Nature's experiments with what it is to be human and alive. Mm
1: And on the the subject of home, we were talking before we recorded, we were talking about um, Wales, which is is my home. And I said jokingly that you probably know more about Wales than I do. And that's probably true. That's probably something I've been guilty of neglecting. Um, And there's a quote you say in the book that too many of us are strangers to our own land. And I think at the moment, we're all very obsessed with this vagabonding lifestyle of jetting around the world exploring all these new places when there's so much on our doorstep we actually ignore why is it important to explore a little bit closer to home
0: well one of the one of the uh, one of the little stories in the book is about the fact that i am very attached to just a few square miles around i live in stirling in in the in the centre right in central scotland right, right smack in the middle of the of mainland scotland um, and a, it's a it's a victorian suburb of, of the city of Stirling um, and I, the nature of my work, not this year, but often, I'm away for, for long periods of time. I've spent months at a time in Australia, spent months at a time as far away as New Zealand, uh, but I'm often away for, you know, weeks or, or months, far from places and I'm constantly wanting home. And wherever I am in the world, I'm thinking about my house and my garden and the place where I walk my dog. And when I, so when I do get to spend a, a, a good chunk of time here, I try to pay attention because I'm aware that, you know, I, you know, I walk past trees with my dog every day and I, I don't even bother to notice what species they are. And we moved to this house about four years ago and my wife's a keen gardener. I, I don't know, I'm not a gardener. There are so, the garden's full of plants that I can't identify. Flowers, shrubs, other things growing. I don't know what they are. And I think that's terrible. I look at them every day. I take pleasure from them. And, you know, and then when I'm out for a walk, you know, I'll, I'll be able to recognise some birds. I can spot some flowers, recognise what they are. But there are a whole host of other things in the landscape. Right here where I live every day that I haven't bothered to pay enough attention to to know their names. And so I tried to I tried to rectify that, and in the in the story in the book that I'm talking about, there's because I'm an archaeologist and I, and I'm, my attention is drawn to old things. As I say, we moved to this house about four years ago, and I, I found a, a route for walking my dog around a golf course nearby, and I noticed one morning, uh, on a patch of a little patch of bedrock, uh, some circular carvings, and I knew them. I knew what they were. They're Neolithic stone age probably four and a half five thousand years old it's called a cup and ring mark it's a it's a kind of rock art that you find all over britain parts of europe there's no consensus about what it means except it it would appear that people would make that kind of effort to carve with stone into another stone they're probably wanting people to pay attention to where they are they're probably saying notice this place and it, it is a it isn't a A very useful bit of high ground where you're looking out towards the rock that has Stirling Castle on it now uh, and the wider landscape of hills beyond it it may it's also close by where there was a a a bronze age burial cairn was was excavated there a hundred years ago so that that cup and ring mark may also have been put in the landscape to say this place is important to our ancestors but it's very close by. I could walk you to it in 10 minutes from here. And I make a point of noticing it as often as I can. And quite often I'll walk away from the path and I'll walk over to it and I just put my hand on it because I like the fact that it's four and a half, five thousand 5,000 years old and I can touch it. And it's made in quartz dollarite rock, which is the same rock as the rock of Stirling Castle. So it's 300 million years old. So it's a rock that's 300 million years old. There's a carving on it that was made by some fellow human being four or five thousand years ago. And long after I am gone, that mark and that rock will still be there for thousands of years to come. And to know that just by paying attention to the minutiae of what's around me, without having to travel 10,000 miles, I can find places that make me feel good finding something that's so old gives me a context for my short life that reminds me that the things i'm so preoccupied with and anxious about at times you know four thousand years ago nobody was bothered about them and in four thousand years time nobody will be bothered about them and it puts my troubles and my concerns into context and i get and that's just because I, I, because I'm an archaeologist, I tend to be looking at the ground all the time, especially when I'm out in in nature. You know, not away from the built-up area. I'm looking at the rock and I'm looking at the landforms because it's in my wiring. But it does mean that I notice things, and I think it's important to notice. I think we're all guilty of what you think with the place where you live. Like it's boring here. There's nothing here. I wish I was in Thailand or I wish I was in. New York City or whatever, and you can miss out. With that mindset, you can miss out on so much. I mean, I said in the book, you know, there's, there's enough stuff here to keep me occupied for years. Just trying to notice everything, every tree, every plant, you know, how the landscape was formed. Just in my line of sight, there's enough. There's enough to occupy my interest. I, I try and remind myself of that all the time.
1: I think that a lot of people. Uh, these days are obsessed with this idea of legacy and what they leave behind and I consume a lot of interviews I listen to a lot of interviews and the sort of common deep question people ask is how would you like to be remembered is that something we should even care about
0: well it's well, a good question um, I think there'll be as many people that would care to be remembered as there are people who aren't bothered one way or another that's I suppose part of each individual psychology, each individual's psychology. But one of the things I look at in the book is that we don't really control how, or even if, we'll be remembered. You you, you know you might think if someone was um, you know had you know five million followers on on Instagram and was you know, had reach around the world that, that you know, in a in hundred years' time, will they be remembered? It's hard to say. They're super visible at the moment and maybe their name is on the lips of every other person. But will they be remembered in five years' time, let alone a hundred years' time? You don't know. And it could be the case that people, that, that the world of the present isn't even noticing at the moment. It might turn out that they are quietly and invisibly making the contribution that will be noticed in a hundred years' time or a thousand years' time. And, but it, and, and some people make, you know, time capsules, don't they? You know, I did it when I was at the end of my university years. Myself and a friend, we filled a, a Tupperware plastic box with news cuttings from the day and some photographs and bits and bobs. I can't even remember now what's in it. And we sealed it all and we went out for a walk right into the countryside where we lived at the time and we buried it. And it's out there and maybe maybe someone will find it. Maybe someone already has, I don't know. Um, But that was like a conscious thing that we were hoping would be found. Some people leave a diary, some people keep a diary. Presumably most people that keep a diary probably want somebody to read it at some point, maybe after they're gone. Um, But you've got no way of controlling that. Maybe nobody will, but there might be some trace of you that you're not even aware of of having left or some contribution you might have made or even something you said might actually last long after you're gone. And within that, there's a a kind of of an encouragement really to, to pay attention to what you're doing because you wouldn't want a crumpled WhatsApp bag flung under a hedge. In a careless moment, in ten thousand years' time, for that to be the only proof that you were ever here, you'd want—if there was going to be a chance discovery—you'd want to do something meaningful and worthwhile. So maybe, maybe it's a kind of an inducement to, to pay attention to the things that we leave behind, because time will decide, in its own mysterious way, whether any of us is remembered, and if we are, it will fossilize something that we're probably not even aware of. Kind of like got to be careful every every email you send, every word you write, every action you perform, because that might be the one that people find. And is that how you want to be remembered?
1: Mm. And I think a lot of people are maybe so obsessed with maybe existing after they're gone that um, you touched on it briefly in the book. There's this massive uh, support at the moment for the, the the futuristic idea of uploading your consciousness and being able to yeah. download that into a robot body one day. And I know, um, you know, guys like Elon Musk and, and, and Lex Friedman in the AI space are a big proponent of this. What are your thoughts on uploading consciousness? And do you think that that almost goes against what it means to be human in the first place?
0: Yeah, I do. I can answer that one right off the top. I'll explain, but I, I am attracted by the idea of uploading my consciousness and, and or then subsequently being able to download it back into some kind of cyborg, uh, synthetic you know, body and thereby you know, live forever. It doesn't, it doesn't appeal to me um, and I feel that we haven't properly, even after all these thousands of years, I don't think we've properly explored what we are. I, I write in the book quite quite often about the meat of us. You know we are made of meat and bone. Our brains are three pounds of meat, um, and there are more um, there are more connections of neurons in your brain than there are subatomic particles in the universe. So you probably run across that statement before. We don't understand what consciousness is. I deal in the book with the fact that um, that transhumanism, as it is, comes up in a, in a piece about uh, Australian Aborigines. Now, depending on where you go in Australia, you'll run across Aboriginal people, Indigenous people, who, who tell you that they, they remember, in as much as stories have been handed down through their generations, that go back thousands of years. They'll talk about where meteorites landed 5,000 years ago, their their ancestors saw it. They'll talk about an inland sea in Australia that that desiccated and disappeared hundreds of, you know, 10,000 years ago, whatever. And, of course, there's no way of knowing if they really do or if they have acquired that knowledge more recently uh, uh, and just persuaded themselves that it's ancient memory. But the point is that, that everyone knows that the, the indigenous Australian people talk about the dreaming, the dream time, which they describe variously, but as a kind of time before time. Before there were, before there were human beings on the planet, and before the landforms were there, there was the dream time, and spirit creatures made the landforms, you know made Uluru and made Australia, and then later, the people came. They do not recall any time when they're not, when their ancestors are not in Australia, okay? Now, we think that indigenous Australians have been there for about 60,000 years, but Homo sapiens, all Homo sapiens started in Africa. So some of their ancestors must have come up out of Africa, through the Middle East, into Asia, and then down somehow into Southeast Asia and across to Australia. They don't have any folk memory of that. All indigenous Australian people will tell you that Aboriginal Australians have only and always been in Australia. So I've thought about that and thought, well, we know biologically that that their ancestors came out of Africa. If they don't remember that, if no folk tradition has come from that, that suggests to me that that journey out of Africa and into Australia happened while the species was still asleep in the way that all other animals are. As far as we know, us human beings are the only conscious creatures in the universe, conscious in the way that we understand it. Everything else, the birds, the dogs, the lions, even the gorillas, they're not conscious in the way that we are, or so we tell ourselves. So it it, it seems to me that the the traditions that the the Australian indigenous people have, when they talk about the dreaming, they are literally having some sort of understanding of a time where their ancestors weren't awake. They were literally dreaming. And then at some point, after their arrival in Australia, the species became conscious for the first time. Now, we don't understand, We don't know what it means to be conscious. Neuroscientists and the rest of them will admit that we, we don't, we, psychologists, psychiatrists, we don't, we don't properly understand what consciousness even is. And I think, well, already said I'm not a Luddite and if people want to upload their consciousnesses and download them into, well fine, I just know that I don't want to do it. And I also think that it might be a bit premature because I think before we make that step we have much much more to understand about ourselves as organic flesh and blood creatures. Before we set out into the brave new world of being made of silicone and plastic with a digitized brain. I just think we should spend much, much more time trying to understand what we are now.
1: I mentioned at the top of the interview um, <clears throat> that I would mention why I love this book so much. And it's simply stories. Um, my favorite book of all time um, has been a book called How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. <laughs> really? And, yeah, my favorite book of all time. Um, and the reason I love that book so much is I've read hundreds of self-help and personal development books and they can give you these ideas. They can give you these facts. But for me, unless there's a story behind it that I can relate that to, it almost gets lost on me. And I think that stories can make the most mundane facts and the most mundane lessons into these beautiful and romantic things. So for you, Do you think that telling stories is almost an obligation we have as humans to continue to keep doing for as long as we're here?
0: Yes, absolutely, 100%. I think we are storytelling creatures. Mm. I think uh, it's how we've understood, it's how each generation has sought to to understand what's going on. And when we have children or when we're trying to pass the information on, it it has happened in the form... Of stories and some stories have lasted for a very very long time you know some of Grimm's fairy tales for example you know when the brothers Grimm wrote them down there are reasons to believe that some of those stories were already thousands of years old thousands of years old by the time they were written down um, the, the stories of the Old Testament we didn't we didn't discover writing until it's probably been writing since about 2,000, 2,500 BC. It's hard to say. Uh, so we've had 5,000 years of writing or there or thereabouts. But, but, but the, the stories of the Old Testament probably weren't written down, any of them, until about maybe 800 BC at the earliest. And some of them weren't written down until you know the centuries AD. But they were already, th- 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 some of them, the Genesis story, Adam and Eve, the flood some of those stories are potentially thousands of years old by the time they came to be written down. So stories are remembered. Some stories, and presumably the stories that last longest, are remembered and passed down in that way because they're valuable. They must contain something like the truth. Now, We've only been scientific, there's only been science as we understand it for maybe 400 years. And before that, there was no scientific thinking. You know, the ancient Greeks, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and the rest, they, they, they attempted understandings of the world, but they weren't being scientific about it. They weren't doing it by observation and experiment, which is what we understand to be the scientific method. But people uh, have, have been have been trying uh, to understand, and they've been doing it in the form of stories. And the, it, it seems self-evident to me that this, the old stories that we still have, that how, however they've been altered and modified in the, in, in, the, in the telling doesn't matter, they last because they, they, they have something about them that's true. Now, all, all science is true. You know, a scientific fact is true, but not all truth is fact you know if i say to you um don't go out in the midday sun in africa because the fire god in the sky will burn your skin now it's not true that there's a fire god that's going to burn your skin but if you listen to me and you don't go out in the sun you won't get burned so there's useful information in the story although the story itself is not actually scientific fact i'm still giving you with that story, valuable information that could save your life. So you'd, remember, so you'd remember that, you'd tell the children, don't go out in the midday sun for any like because the fire god in the sky. If you see what I mean, so that there's a value in stories. So for, for, for most of the time, for hundreds of thousands of years, we had no science. And we, but people understood the world by looking around, having experience, thinking things through, coming to conclusions. And they put that information into stories. And the stories that contain meaningful, useful information were passed down and passed down and passed down. And we've still got them today. And so the, the durability of the long lasting nature of some stories surely says that storytelling is important and worthwhile. And, and just as you say, I mean, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm not a scientist. I don't have scientific method. And so I need stories. To, to get me to understanding. I've read book after book about quantum theory because I'm desperate to understand quantum theory. But the, a lot of the maths and physics it, it is, a, it is an impossible obstacle for me. I can't get to it. But So I turn occasionally, like a drowning person, to so there's a, an American physicist called Nick Herbert. And he, he described how uh, the... The Newtonian model had small, had big things made of small things, small things made of smaller things, all the way down. But in the quantum theory of, of very small things, it, it's not like that. Big things aren't made of small things. It, 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 you get into this territory where entities behave one way when they're being observed, and they behave in a different way when they're not being observed and the quantum universe is a a world of possibilities and probabilities, but it's it's a completely different model than than the Newtonian model. And I get lost in all of that. That just becomes a fog of of, of thinking that I can't understand. But then, you know, Nick Herbert says that um, we exist in a King Midas-like predicament, unable to experience the true texture of reality because everything we touch turns to matter everything King Midas touched turned to gold, including his daughter. So he couldn't touch her, couldn't feel her, because in the moment of reaching out to her, he turned her into gold, and that's something else. And we, when we touch the table or, or touch whatever, we don't actually feel it, because in the moment of our touching it, whatever it is turns to matter under our hands. Now, I, I get the outside edge of the glimmering of understanding what he means at that point in a way that a stream of equations just wouldn't just wouldn't transmit to me the kernel of what it is that I want to know about what he understands and so for someone like me and I think for most people most of the time it's stories even simple stories that get us where we need to be
1: and I think in a world where everything's moving so fast now everyone's trying to innovate everyone's telling you to keep moving forward It's important to look back and remember. And so I encourage everyone to check out Wisdom of the Ancients, certainly my book of 2020 so far. Um, And a shout out to your publisher, because I think it's probably the nicest book cover I've ever seen in my life as well. So it's amazing. Um, So where can our audience check out the book and maybe find you on social media for more?
0: Oh, well, um, well the, the, the book published in uh, last month, so it's, it's, uh, it's in all bookshops. If you can get them, please remember to pay attention to independent bookshops, because now more than ever, those small independent outlets, they need support. Um, you'll be able to obtain the book online. It's published by, by Transworld. Uh, as you see, I'm, I'm, I love the, the appearance uh, of the book myself. And on Twitter, I'm there as The Coast Guy. Uh, and um, I comment on this, that, and the and the next thing uh, via that. But um, I can I can honestly say, you know, this conversation and hearing that that book uh, has appealed to you in the way that you say it has has made my day, uh, and that you think it's your book of twenty twenty so far. Just hearing that from you, one person, makes it all worthwhile. So that's great for me. Thank you very much.
1: And thank you for for the value you've brought to the podcast. One of my favorite conversations I've ever had in in 150 episodes. So uh, thanks for bringing the value and I hope you enjoyed the conversation as well.
0: I very much did. I very much did. Kindred spirit you are. So it's been (laughs) a pleasure spending some time with you.
1: Thank you guys so much for listening to the Freedom Pact podcast. If you prefer video format, then every single one, of these interviews are available in video at youtube.com forward slash freedom pact where you can see ourselves and the hosts having these conversations in video also i would like to say again if you haven't yet signed up to the healthy wealthy and wise newsletter please do so at freedompact.co.uk forward slash newsletter i can promise you personally there's no marketing involved There is no noise. There's no nonsense. It is just simply us sending you value every Monday in the areas of health, wealth, and wisdom that will help you grow. We will see you guys again here on Friday with another episode. Until then, thank you so much, Freedom Pact family.